Well, I invite you to take your Bibles to hand, open to the book of Jonah. We began this uh, series last week. We'll be making our way through all of the minor prophets over a period of time. We'll be here in Jonah for a few weeks. Uh, Jonah, chapter 1. My, the focus of my uh, message this morning is 7 through 16, but I want to read right from the beginning of the chapter for, for context. So I encourage you to turn in your own Bibles and, and uh, att- attend with mind and, and ears and heart to the Word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, and there was a mighty, uh, and so that the ship was threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Here's where our focus is this morning. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of God. I need help. We all need help to hear from the Lord. So I invite you to pray with me. Fathers, your word lies open before us. We know that it is for us. And because it's for us, it's to make us wise to salvation It is to sanctify us in this very truth. And because, Father, you call men, mere men, to preach, we know that something supernatural needs to happen above the voice of a mere man. And so we're asking for that to happen. Would you plant your word on our hearts and give each of us humble, 
submissive and ready minds and hearts to hear from you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when you embrace something, you take it to yourself. You acknowledge it. You own it. A hug is an embrace. You're, you're taking someone to yourself. When you embrace a thing, you acknowledge it. You take it to yourself. Now, I realize in my sermon title, if you've looked at it, at first glance, it might sound like I'm promoting some kind of pop psychology. That's, that's not my aim this morning. But what I do want to do is look closely at the scripture we read together and consider the word fear and what that means to embrace it. What does it mean to embrace fear? So let me just give you some examples. Uh, if you're in a large crowd and this horrific thing happened uh, last week, so the Kansas City Chiefs victory parade, if you hear shots ring out, the immediate and logical response is fear. It's not unusual. It's a natural feeling that there's danger or peril, right? And we've all had that feeling. I mean, if you've been at the parade, you'd have that feeling, but we've all had that feeling in other circumstances. Maybe you hear something in the night in your house, or, or maybe you're driving and the car in front of you on the highway suddenly slams on the brakes. Your whole body tenses up. You, you have that sense of fear. Well, what do you do as a response? Well, it might be a split-second decision, but no, there's some people just freeze up. But we know the rational thing, the rational thing to do is acknowledge it. Embrace the reality that there is danger and, and do what you can to mitigate it, right? So determine the cause. Take evasive action, if at all possible. Run for cover, steer to the shoulder. You get it, right? Embrace fear means dealing with it, acknowledging it. Now, let me give you a different example. On a, on a merely human plane, every one of us have people that we rightly fear. Now, I'm not talking about those who have a, a, some malevolence towards you. I'm not talking about that. Young children should fear their father and their mother, right? And, and maybe those of you who serve in the military, you properly fear when the three-star general shows up at your squad, right? You Fear. And in this sense, the word fear is synonymous with reverence. That person you fear holds a station and has authority that is far above yours. So to embrace that kind of fear is to understand your place. You should give honor. You should show respect. You should submit to that authority. Now, I've given you those two examples because both, both of those senses of the word fear are evident in our text before us. And I want us to look at how the actors in this narrative embrace their fears of both circumstances as well as giving due honor. And this matters. This matters to us because it has everything to do with salvation. That is what is at stake. So let me state this another way. If you know who to fear, you need not fear. If you know who to fear, you need not fear. And this is true because of what Jonah confesses in the next section. We'll get to this next week where he says salvation belongs to the Lord. So let's talk about embracing fear. And in this, my first heading here, and there's only two for this sermon, 
to embrace fear, you have to face the fear of judgment. Face the fear of judgment. Now, justice matters. Everybody agrees with that. Every culture, every society has some sort of moral code, whether that's an objective source, and we say, as believers, we say that's God, right? Or, or in some other societies or cultures or people, some lesser God, false God, but somebody in their mind, something in their mind that is a deity, or maybe even just simply, something as simple as a social contract. We just agree. When the law is broken, it is acknowledged that there needs to be a consequence. When there's some transgression, judgment will come, right? Now, the thing is, for all of us, I think this is true. In the way that society is run, we fully expect transgressors of laws to experience justice. We want people to be treated with justice. Justice must be done. But we know this about ourselves. What we want for ourselves, regardless of what we've done, we want mercy. We really want that. Now let's look at the mariners here. This storm is, is very severe. We know it's from the Lord. But, but from their perspective, they're looking at the situation. The ship might break up. They might drown. What are we going to do, they're saying. Now they don't know it's the Lord. They don't know the Lord. The Lord hurled the storm, yes, but they don't know him. What they do, of course, is they cry out to their own gods. That's back in verse 5. And presumably, they're calling for mercy. Now, of course, they don't get a response because dead gods don't speak, right? So they try for a practical solution. They start hurling their cargo overboard. They want to lighten the ship, right? Now, this is their livelihood, so you know that this is dead serious to them. They're giving up everything that, that, that will be the means for them getting paid just so that they can, what they believe, is stay alive. Now, of course, this doesn't help. And so what they now conclude is that the, someone is personally responsible for what's going on. They say, on whose account this evil has come upon us? They're saying, somebody's responsible. Whose God is angry with him? And to them, it looks like judgment. So what do they do? We see that they cast lots. Casting lots. Really the equivalent of rolling dice or drawing straws, right? But the thing is, these mariners don't believe in chance. They don't treat it like we do. You draw straws for somebody to do some unpleasant task, whatever. But they don't believe in chance. What they're doing is they're using this as a means of divining. They believe that some deity will direct the result. Of course, modern minds conclude that these mariners are superstitious and ignorant, right? And perhaps they are. But it is true that someone is indeed behind the roll of the dice. Someone is indeed behind the lottery. Yes, the drawing of straws, the casting of lots. Proverbs says this, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, I'm not making a defense here for casting lots or playing the lottery. I've often said playing the lottery is a tax on fools. Don't do that. God wants to give you a jackpot. He doesn't need a lottery to do it. But as we move on, God used the lot in that circumstance, the, the roll of the dice, if you will, to, real, to reveal that Jonah was actually the culprit here. So when the lot falls to Jonah, they ask him, what's your occupation? I mean, it's like peppering him with questions. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? 
And Jonah gives the answer. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, God of heaven, who made the dry land and the sea. Now, this is likely new information to the mariners. Their regional god said, was a god over this or a god over that? But Jonah's saying, this is the god over everything. And I, I take it that he probably at that point revealed that he is a prophet. He did, in fact, tell them he was fleeing from the Lord. No doubt adding to their great concern. So they ask him, what is this? This is verse 10. What is this that you have done? And I take it this is probably rhetorical. Look what we're caught up in. What do you mean by all this? What have you done? Now, most rational people want to avoid judgment. Most people avoid breaking laws. And, and those that break laws, they only do so believe, because they believe somehow that they can do it without being found out, right? Now, when the lawbreaker or the guilty one or, or the one on the ship is found out, it's like, what do those mariners want? They want mercy because they're now experiencing the consequences of Jonah's rebellion. And in their mind, Jonah's God is demanding justice. Jonah's God wants justice. On whose account was this? Jonah's God demands some justice. What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Now, see, at this point, the storm is getting more and more and more severe. Now, Jonah, having been exposed, his sin was exposed, he knows that he must pay. He knows that he must die for his sin. Now, he tells the mariners, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Now, I know we know the story, right? Jonah doesn't know what's going to happen. Jonah's thinking, this is it. I need to die. Hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. He owns it. He owns it. Now, I find it really interesting at this point that Jonah does not pray to God for mercy. He doesn't repent. Now, if I was watching this on a movie, and I do this sometimes, I'd be talking to the TV. Call it to God. You know him. He knows you. Just call out. How hard can that be? Well, chucking Jonah overboard, that seems way too extreme for these mariners. So instead of listening to Jonah, what they do is they, they, they row all the harder. They try to get to land. But the intensity of the storm only increases. Now, it's at this point, they bypass Jonah. And I think he has proved to be a rather useless prophet of the Lord. Quite useless. And they do, they do what Jonah should have done. They call out directly to the Lord. And what they say and do is quite revealing. Now, before we look at that, I want to just take a, a step back. I want to point out here that the book of Jonah is not only about how God shows mercy ultimately to the Ninevites, but that that mercy is prefigured in his mercy towards these Phoenician mariners. It's not just the Ninevites get saved. 
these Phoenician mariners do too. Now, we're not there yet. Now, from a whole, whole Bible perspective, I want you to see this. This is Bible theology, right? From a whole Bible perspective, God's mercy to these non-Israelite people is ultimately the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 22, 18. In your offspring, he says to Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now we fast forward to the New Testament. We find out that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That, that prefigures, this blessing prefigures salvation uh, in Old Testament types like Jonah. He's a prefiguring type of, of the Christ. And I say that because this is what Jesus said about Jonah being assigned to an unrepentant Israel. He said this, Jesus said this, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And in, that's Luke eleven thirty, And in Matthew 12, 41, this is what he said about himself. Something greater than Jonah is here. Now, I want you to follow me on this. We'll be looking at next week where Jonah is in the belly of the great fish for three days. That's, that's a very obvious aspect that, that is a sign, right? Jo Jonah's in the belly of the great fish for three days. Jesus is in the tomb for three days. That's a very obvious aspect of this sign that Jonah is. But that's just one aspect of it. You see, before Jonah is swallowed up by the fish, the mariners plead with the Lord and listen to what they say. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Then they hurled him in the sea. Lay not on us innocent blood. See, they know the Lord was judging. And what they believe is going to happen before they hurl him in the sea, in their minds, at least in their conception of it, I mean, we see Jonah's sin, but they're thinking, this man... Lay not on us innocent blood. God, don't hold us accountable for the innocence of this man that we're going to kill. They believe that an innocent man would be sacrificed for their own deliverance. And I want you to see this. See, as we look to apply this to each of us, we must understand that the key to being delivered from God's judgment is understanding that justice matters. Justice matters to God and it's the reason for God's judgment our sin and the mariners get that knowing this is what we, all also, we must know knowing that an innocent man Christ the God man must pay the price for our deliverance from that judgment and that it was God's plan to do so as it says in Isaiah 53, 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. That's describing the death of Jesus. The mariners face their fear of God's judgment by seeking the Lord. They embraced that fear. They acknowledged it. They did what they were supposed to do. An innocent man ultimately calmed 
the death of an innocent man calmed the storm. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we face the fear of judgment by embracing Christ. A verse that I often quote. Craig, you'll quote it with me. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake he made him, the Son of God, to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin. He had him crucified. Now God's salvation is not cheap. His wrath for sin is not insignificant. And the bad news is that each of us would be condemned for our sin. But the fact is, that's what drives us to Christ. The fact that we would be condemned for our sin is what drives us to Christ. We have to embrace the reality of judgment before we can fully understand the glorious gift that Jesus is. The innocent was sacrificed for the guilty. Jesus died for our filth. And we can be confident that Christ's sacrifice was once for all. So we need not live or wallow in the regret or fear of condemnation in the future. We have the righteousness of Christ. But we should never, ever, ever let that sin that put Christ on the cross, we should never permit it back in our lives. We should not welcome that back in our lives. And so to do that brings me to the next heading. First heading, embrace the fear. Face your fear of judgment. To do that properly, we must embrace the fear of the Lord. Embrace the fear of the Lord. Now, late in uh, 2022, NBC News reported that, this is in the news, President Joe Biden approved a limited TikTok ban Thursday when he signed a particular bill into law. The ban prohibits the use of TikTok by the federal government's nearly 4 million employees. So that was signed into law by the president. So all devices owned by the government agencies with limited exceptions for law enforcement, national security and security research purposes. There's, there's a ban on using that app. Now, a few days ago, you might have seen this, President Biden's re-election campaign posted on TikTok. Now, I, I get it. The campaign isn't the same as the government, but one must wonder, if the president actually believes the things that he declares. Now, not just dumping on the president. To be fair, he is not the first president to say something. He's not the first politician to say something and then do the opposite. In fact, it's not really surprising to us. It's just like Tuesday, right? That's what they do. I know, I'm a little cynical about <laughs> But you know, when that kind of hypocrisy is revealed in one who is a prophet of the Lord, that should be quite surprising to us, right? And especially, we see this in the case of Jonah where it's so obvious and so egregious. Jonah's words, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the God of heaven. And Jonah made two claims there, only one of which seems to be actually true, right? Now if I could, I'd, I'd wanna ask Jonah, <laughs> What do you actually mean by fear the Lord? What does that mean to you? He seemed to have some different definition than what I would expect. 
And I take it that Jonah here is an example of what not to do, what not to do. What does it mean to fear the Lord? If fear is reverence, that must mean, first of all, that you believe in him. Now, Jonah believed in him. But if we're going to rightly fear the Lord, what does that mean? Well, you've got to believe in him. Hebrews 11.6 says this, without faith, it is impossible to please him, that's the Lord, for whoever, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Like I said, Jonah got this part. But I don't think he believed God would be good to him. Jonah seemed to think that the Lord showing mercy to the Ninevites was an offense personally against him. He didn't see it as a good thing to him. To believe in God is to believe in him as he has revealed himself. That's vitally important. A lot of people, a lot of people in our culture, they talk about higher powers, they talk about believing God. A lot of people believe in God, put that in quotes, but so often it's a God of their own imaginations, a God divorced from God's own self-revelation in the scriptures. You often hear it in, I like to think of God as a, well, God certainly loves the way I define love. Well, God is, that's God. No, no, God, to believe God, we must believe in him as he has revealed himself. Believing, that's part of revering, that's part of fearing the Lord. But to truly believe in God is to love him. The command says this in Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God. Doesn't leave it there. How? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Just the entirety of your being, you must love the Lord your God. To love God is to treasure him above all else, above, above anything in this world, above your stuff, above your abilities. And yes, above your own children, above your spouse. To love God is to love him over all those things. Even the most important things in your life, God is more. He must be supreme because God is supremely worth our love. So to believe God is to love him. To believe God is to believe in him. To, to fear God is to believe in him. To believe him is to love him. But to truly love God is to obey him. Again, from the law, Exodus 23, pay careful attention to him. As you have to engage your mind in this. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. So that's obedience. Obedience to God without equivocation, without prevarication, without ambiguity, none of that. Whether obeying seems practical in the moment or not, whether it's easy or extraordinarily difficult, and often obeying is extraordinarily difficult. Obeying God is trusting that his word is absolutely true and good and that in the obedience of it, it will result in things that are beautiful. It's knowing whatever you say is the absolute best in every moment, every circumstance. To love God is to obey him. 
Now Jonah says he fears the Lord and his actions, I think we can see, prove otherwise. Now again, I've said it, but it surprises me that the storm itself does not drive him to repent. Instead, what he's willing to do is go to his watery grave persisting in his rebellious resolve. Jonah's fear of the Lord, I take it at this point, is an empty confession. Now he's going to get a change of direction. We will see that. But at this point, it just looks like an empty confession. But what surprises me here is the response of the mariners. That really surprised me. See, at the beginning of the chapter, they're pagans. They each had different regional gods. And, and these gods were a delusion at best, but certainly could very well have been demonic powers masquerading as gods. But as they discovered, their false gods could do nothing at all to rescue them from the peril of the sea, but more importantly, their gods could not rescue them from the ultimate judgment. And when throwing Jonah into the sea, they see it quieted the tempest. They believed the Lord, the text tells us. The men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They feared the Lord. I don't think the word fear in regards to reverence was used accidentally. Jonah said he feared the Lord. And the mariners truly feared the Lord. They feared, they respected, they honored, and they did that exceedingly. They were all in now. Now, unwittingly, Jonah had introduced these Phoenicians to the true and living God. He never intended to. The God of heaven, the, the God over the land and the sea, the only God who is over all. The mariners rightly feared God's judgment, and they turned to him in fear and reverence. So as we seek to apply this, if you truly fear the Lord like those mariners, if we truly fear the Lord, your life, my life, should be marked by, we see what they did, by vows. Let me say commitments and sacrifice. Use the word service. Vows are settled commitments. Settled commitments. So if you fear the Lord, your life should be marked by a settled commitment to love and obey him. Now, we don't do this perfectly. We get it. But in our minds, we say, that's what I want. That's what I'm committed to. Without equivocation, without kind of keeping a separate line for my, this is my space over here. No, this is like absolute, right? If you fear the Lord, he is supreme. And so our lives are then marked by those commitments. I don't want to do evil. So turning away from sin and pursuing holiness, instead of using our tongues to curse, finding ways to, to love, express that. To worship, encourage others. Instead of using our hands for violence, finding ways to serve. And if you truly fear the Lord, your life will be marked by sacrifice. Now, God is not interested in animal sacrifices. I'm sure the mariners did something like that on the ship. God isn't interested in animal sacrifices. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. It tells us in Hebrews 7.27. So that's not what it means. 
But the Bible does tell us the kind of sacrifices that God desires. King David confessed this. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, God, oh God, you will not despise. Now listen, some in this room may be running from God if that's you. God is not looking for some sort of penance from you. Giving up meat or cake for Lent will not bring God's favor. What God wants is for you to come to him in humility. God wants you from your heart to acknowledge your own failure to be righteous. Now I know. I know you probably feel like you don't have any power to change. And that's right. You don't have it in you. But take a lesson from King David. And what I wrote, read from that psalm is the occasion when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet for his adultery and murder. Egregious sins. Take a lesson. This is what he said. This is what he prayed. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me. Create, that's, that's a supernatural work. So if you've been running from the Lord, if you've been rebellion in rebellion, pray that. Ask God to do in you that which you cannot do for yourself. And hear me on this. He will do it. Now, God delights as well in heartfelt worship. So if you're a child of God this morning, enjoying what it means to be a child of God, enjoying the blessings of that, know this, God delights in your heartfelt worship. It says in Hebrews 13, 15, and this is in the area of sacrifice, right? Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It's a sacrifice of praise because what you're doing is you're not thinking about yourself. You're not exalting yourself. What you're saying is God is greater and I'm going to say it. I'm going to sing it. I'm going to declare it. God is good. God is perfect. God is almighty. All that you can think of the re scripture reveals about God, you say back to him, this is you. I get it. See, when we praise God, it tunes our hearts. It puts everything else in life in proper perspective. Now, listen, God doesn't need you to praise him. He's not waiting for you. I don't feel very good if you don't praise me. God doesn't need your praise. God knows you need to praise him. You need your heart tuned. I need my heart tuned. And because you know God's mercy, it changes your life. You see, truly, truly fearing God surrenders our bodily autonomy to the Lord. So very counter-cultural, isn't it? You fear the Lord, you surrender your bodily autonomy. Listen to what it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind 
so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, with our minds transformed by the gospel, that truth that Jesus, the sinless son of God, took upon himself the consequences of our sin, taking that to the cross, dying there, being buried in a tomb, and believing, you believing that he rose from the grave, having truly believed this, we, we work out the will of God in our bodies. Your mind, how you use your senses, how you use your hands, how you walk, now all of that in service of all that is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what it means to fear the Lord. Not like Jonah. Interestingly, like the mariners. Well, I said at the beginning, if you know who to fear, you need not fear again. That's the beauty of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. If you truly fear the Lord, it means you've, you've acknowledged your sin before the Lord. If you truly fear the Lord, you, you see he sent his son for you. If you truly fear the Lord, then that changes everything about you. And you need not fear condemnation. The Bible says we're not destined for wrath. No more. No more wrath. You have the favor of God in the Son of God. And if we learn anything from Jonah, we learn that God shows mercy to the ones we'd least expect. And know this, no one is unsavable. No one is unsavable. Well, face the fear of judgment and turn to Christ. And having turned to him with a settled commitment and service, Embrace, that is to say, live each day in the fear and reverence of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, that's what I want. Um, that's what I pray for all my brothers and sisters here. We love you, God, because you first loved us. And that love is only, only expanded because we see the immensity of the sacrifice of your son for the sake of reconciling us to you. An indescribable gift as your word describes. Father, help us as your people to live each day in true fear and reverence of you for all you have done. Not only your justice, but the immensity of your grace and mercy in our lives. And keep us faithful. I pray this every week, but this is what I want for us. Keep us faithful until your son, our savior Jesus, returns and every knee acknowledges him as and every tongue confesses and acknowledges him as king. Hold us for that day. We pray in his name. Amen. <laughs>